Welcome to Only Girl on the Job Site. I'm Renee Beery, a luxury interior designer and construction expert. Educated at the New York School of Interior Design and employed by AD Top 100 firms, I have created a niche expertise in managing large-scale construction projects from renovations to new builds over the past three decades. Today, I'm on a mission to instill confidence in designers through this podcast and my online course, The Interior Designer's Guide to Construction Management. Whether you are new to construction management or a seasoned designer like me, I am all about transparency and tactical advice for fellow designers. On this podcast, I share actionable steps, practical tips, real-life examples, and behind-the-scenes tricks that I use while managing construction projects. Not only will they keep them on schedule and on budget, but will give you the confidence to know that these projects will end successfully, protecting your profit as well as leading to a pipeline full of incredible referrals. If you've been searching for support and advice on construction management to grow your skills and confidence so you can avoid the mistakes that I've made in the past, then you're in the right place. Before we get started, I want to thank each of you for being a part of this community. Your listens, subscribes, and reviews are what allows me to make this show great week after week. I've got lots of plans for growing this podcast, and that's enabled by you. Make sure to follow the podcast so that you get notifications of new episodes so you don't miss a thing. If you enjoy this episode, spread the word. Leave a review and tell your interior design friends how much they can learn from this show. Today, I have a special treat for all of you because you're going to be able to listen into a conversation I had with fellow interior designer, Leslie Myrick. She is a luxury interior designer, as well as being an interior design business coach with Nancy Ganzakoffer. Leslie Myrick is a recognized design media personality and the CEO of Leslie Myrick Interior Design, a full-service boutique interior design firm based in Macon, Georgia. Having lived and worked internationally, Leslie specializes in designing personality-driven, playful, and function-forward forever homes for professional families. Media outlets including Architectural Digest, People, Forbes Home, Insider, and InStyle Magazine have celebrated Leslie for her signature aesthetic of bold, colorful, and collected interiors that offer a fresh take on Southern design. And so today, Leslie and I are going to break down something you are always asking me about, and that is the best practices of pricing a project and what it actually looks like to be profitable through margins hourly, or flat fee rates. While all my guest episodes end up covering a range of topics because we just get so excited to talk about the industry that we love, we really do get into the weeds and the nuts and bolts of pricing projects. So get ready to take some notes along the way. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm really excited to introduce to you my friend, Leslie Myrick. She comes to us with a wealth of knowledge as a seasoned professional, not only in interior design, but also in construction management. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Renee. I'm so happy to get to be here with you today. I have been a fan of your podcast for a long time and glad that we've gotten connected this way. It's wonderful. And I just love the connectivity that it's offered to designers across the country and definitely up in Canada as well. 
So Leslie, why don't you tell us all about yourself, how you got into this crazy industry that we love? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I am definitely one of those stereotypical designers that has wanted to do this forever. I mean, we hear the story a lot, but you know, I was a kid asking my dad to push my furniture around because I knew I wanted my room to feel different, but was too young and small to do it myself. And that's kind of how it started. I remember growing up, I was always obsessed with decorating my walls and painting and all the things. And I think I knew innately when I was quite young the power that having a space that feels good brings to your life. And I, I I wasn't able to put words to it when I was a kid, but over the years I have realized that's why I love what I do. And so I, you know, went to school for design. I'm actually from Canada. So started my career in Toronto, worked for a number of years there. I eventually left that to manage a trim and fabric showroom and a couture high-end drapery workroom. So, I mean, that was a complete different side of the world. Took a year off to join a music ministry and sing for a year, which is a crazy blip in that career path and ended up meeting my husband and moving to the States. (laughs) So (laughs) since coming to the States, I have now lived in Minnesota, California, Texas, and I'm in Georgia now. I have started my business, I guess this would be iteration number four, Toronto, LA, Waco, Texas, and Macon, Georgia. I have accidentally become an expert at starting businesses (laughs) in new cities where I have network and no community and no resources, which is part of how coaching started because I was able to teach on that. But I've been very grateful to have been able to really figure out what my style is, who I serve, how I serve them, and to be okay with sticking out a little bit in this industry. I know most people are listening on the podcast. I'm not sure if there's a video component, but I have a mostly shaved head and facial piercings and tattoos and I can tell you I did not fit in Waco, Texas when I lived there (laughs) at the height of Fixer Upper and White Shiplap, but it's been amazing kind of finding that space to stand in where I'm doing my thing. I've got my point of view. I think a lot of us have this where we know what we bring to this industry and what our perspective is. And when you can stick with that, you end up attracting the people who appreciate that. So I've been very fortunate to have started so many businesses over and over, not on purpose, and be kind of thriving in a place where I'm kind of, after four years here where we're not moving again, (laughs) really finding my footing as a designer here locally, as well as getting really deeply involved in the coaching world too. That's amazing. And and for those of you listening, so Leslie and I've had several conversations and emails and I did not know how aligned we were with our growing up and the interest in interiors. I was the exact same way. My mother was kind and allowed me to try all sorts of goofy ass things in my room. I had almost like a trapeze with Laura Ashley fabric on it at one point. I thought I was just absolutely the coolest thing on earth. And, you know, it does, it improves the quality of the life you're living in your spaces. And I, I think some designers lose, lose track of that because you're so busy in the moment doing the work that you don't realize how you've just elevated someone's quality of life. And that's awesome. Like how many other careers do we know of that improves the quality of someone's life in their home, you know, aside from doctors and all of that, but we really do improve their lives. And people just say, oh, it's so pretty. And you're like, well, yes, it's pretty, but it's also highly functional and this and that, and it adds this. 
and I too went to to design school and and I'm finding and Leslie and I spoke about this earlier there are more and more designers who are no longer you know mm-hmm. choosing that path and when I went to school I was old fashioned I was like well this is the one way to go now this also predated the internet so there really wasn't another option so for everyone listening um sure I'm happy to share um some video footage but what I also love about this is when I started in the business, there was one way designers were to look, right? I was in New York City. There was the Bunny Williams, the Charlotte Mosses, you know, and God bless each and every one of them. They had a specific look and you were meant to look like a designer. And I, I got close. I don't think I ever got comfortable in that role, mainly because I loved construction sites. So, you know, skirts and heels and things like that don't really go well there. But now all bets are off and I love it. And actually one of my best friends from design school lives in Southern California now, who, if she's listening, hi, Elizabeth. She actually has very similar hair as Leslie, but no facial piercings other than earrings. And so, yeah, she's like, yeah, don't care, Renee. She grew up in Connecticut, you know, in a very preppy environment. And she's like, yeah, no one cares what I look like. They, they only care about what I can produce for them. And I think Having that mindset comes through with not only your marketing, but your work. Yeah. I I love that you talked about all that because I think it's something that even when I started my career, so 21, when I graduated, I jumped right into the working world, working for a celebrity designer in Toronto. And I remember I had pierced my lip, my little rebellious self in college. And a few months in, I was like, I took it out. I bought suits. I was like, I'm a grown up now. I want to be taken seriously. And now that I'm almost 40, I'm kind of like, fuck that. Like, yeah. I'm wearing pigtails today. Yeah. I'm like, I love that I can be a grown up and be running a professional business and still express myself in that way. So you're right. And things have changed. Things have you changed. Know, it was it was different. I mean, I started and I had a physical Rolodex on my desk. So the world has evolved a little bit since. Oh, Renee still has a Rolodex. I just showed her my Rolodex. So yes, I am a little old fashioned in some ways, but um, mainly because I don't really feel like transcribing all of those numbers into my phone. So it's a little bit of a lazy factor in that as well. It also sort of gives me a giggle when I look at it and my kids don't know what it means. Like, what is that thing over there? But yeah. And so I think also Leslie and I have the same mindset is probably the best way to do it as far as managing our our businesses and and how we how we go about how we go about practicing the art of interior design, including obviously the construction management piece of it. Mm -hmm. So Leslie and I were just talking before we started recording and I did not go to high point. And if anyone's been listening, you've been hearing me have some FOMO, but it just did not work out. And Leslie and I both agree it's exhausting going twice a year. So I, for those of you listening, I'm, I'm likely going in April. So hopefully we can meet up in person. Leslie was a part of a panel there that, when we started talking, I knew I wanted Leslie on here. I knew I wanted her to share her expertise with all of you because she has so much to offer. And then she was telling me about this panel and tell me, and it was at Zimmerman Chair for any of those who may have been able to go. This is Leslie. And tell me a little bit about one, what the panel was about and, and two, kind of how that all got formed. Yeah. So I was invited to speak with um, a panel being organized by the Designers Collaborative, which is a group that I'm part of, and they do amazing stuff for profitability for designers. But I, A, I love the topic. It was a panel all about pricing. 
And I also love that it was a panel and not just one person saying, this is the right way to do it. It was three designers. And I will tell you, all three of us had completely different approaches to pricing, to profitability, to how we build, to how we talk to clients about it. So it was very, very fascinating as a learning lesson for me Okay, and also getting to share. Can you repeat that? All three. Oh, there we go. Yes. All three designers, three experts in our field had different ways that we price projects. And now I know that frustrated the hell out of everyone listening <laughs> because we're all looking for the magic bullet. Yeah. And and trust me, it frustrates me. And, and Liz and I talked about that right before we started recording. I mean, I have searched for it for three decades and have yet to see, quote, the perfect. Now, that doesn't mean everyone doesn't feel their way is perfect, but it's perfect for them at that stage in their career. And I think that's really critical. And so for the designers listening that are beating themselves up thinking, well, if only I could find the perfect way of doing this, things would work out. And the reality is there is no perfect way. There is a right way for you for right now. And I think that's really important for people to to give themselves a break, basically. Yeah, I agree with that. There isn't a magic bullet. And trust me, I've paid for the programs. I've bought the calculators. Like there's, there's some great stuff out there. Don't mishear me, but there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't work for me. It doesn't mean it doesn't work for somebody else, but I think it's also really important. Not only do you have to figure out your pricing up front, but it's really important to look on the back end and actually analyze your jobs and understand if you're making money, you might be charging, and I'm air quoting here, you might be charging $250 an hour. But if you run your numbers and figure out the actual time you spent, you might only be making $58 an hour. And it's it's easy to kind of trick yourself and bury your head in the sand and not do that. But the front end pricing and proposal, I think is just as important as that back end post-project looking at everything and making sure you're on the right track. That's how you get better at pricing is you look at your numbers, what worked, what didn't, what do I need to course correct next time? Do I need to change my pricing structure? Do I need to increase my hourly rate? Do I need to just say no to this project because it's going to be a disaster? You don't know that until you've really looked at the data after. And I know people are like, their eyes are glazing over like, I don't want to look at the numbers. I know you don't. Trust me, none of us do. But you need to if you want to actually have a profitable business and have enough money to go to High Point, to hire great photographers, to take vacations, to have that balance in your life that we are all craving. And I think the easiest way to put it is is you you must look at your numbers, right? In, yeah. in order to take whatever it is you're doing from a hobby to a business. Because if you aren't making the money it's a hobby and and obviously not a good one because you're losing money. And I don't say that lightly because I know there's a lot of designers who are insanely well-intending. They think they're doing the right thing. They just don't know that in fact, like you said, at the the postmortem, it's not working out. They're so busy getting onto that next project. They don't have that the time or they're not making the time to or the bandwidth to figure it out. And if they don't know how to do it, they need to find someone to ask, right? Ask your accountant. There's lots of people in our lives outside of, you know, showrooms, fabric showrooms that can actually help make sense of it all to make sure that you really are on the right, the right path, especially in construction. I think that's also something that makes a lot of designers anxious when they are first bringing on construction or they've quote 
as I hear a lot, I've stumbled into it or I got dragged into it. You know, all of these different ways of basically other people in your life telling you, you'd probably be pretty good at this. Yeah. Now, Leslie, how much construction have you done? How did you kind of get into that world? How does that all look for you? Yeah, I construction, I will say, is not my favorite part. I'm happy to do it. I know it's good. But the decor, it truly, my love is decorating. Like, give me all the fabrics and pillows and sofas all day long. Like, that's my jam. But I started managing remodels as part of full service projects. And I actually, I really do enjoy it. But I guess it was, I don't want to say it was accidental because I've always wanted to get there. But it just took a while after starting my business to, you know, you get small jobs. You usually starts with like the decorating and I need some help with furniture. And it kind of evolves from there. So at this point, I've done plenty of kitchens and bathrooms, you know, full custom, things like that. And I guess the, the one trick I've learned is to work with really great people. Yes. Which is the hardest part of the job too. Hands down. Said great people. I but tell yeah. everyone, I said, it makes, I can't even think of the number of people it takes to make me look good. Right. Oh. 100%. And yeah. even like early on in a project, I love bringing my contractors, my trades in early and say, here's my high level idea. What do you think? Will it work? And then, <laughs> well, that's part of it. Oh, my biggest pet peeve is when we're watching design shows and someone will go through and be like, we're going to tear down this wall and do this. And I'm like, you haven't talked to a contractor. Shut up. You're right. And then later, of course, they're like, oh, we can't do that. I'm like, yeah. no kidding. Or my favorite part of those shows is we can do it for an extra 150000 They go, oh, okay. And you're like, wow, which client is that? I know. Got can a, I have one a, of those, please? You had 150 <laughs> just sitting around waiting for me to, to spend it? You know, oh, yeah, it drives me yeah. crazy. But I, I tell my clients all the time, I know enough to know I don't know everything, but yes. I know enough to work with smart people who are great at what they do. And when we all partner up, the end result is just so much better than if I came in and said, I'm the designer and this is what we're doing. Because I don't know everything. And I love that I've got that team of trades that can bring their ideas and opinions and knowledge and expertise. And we all elevate each other to get some pretty, pretty great projects under our belts. 100%. And I think that's an intimidation factor for a lot of designers. So I think it's great to hear someone as seasoned as you are. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. And there's a misnomer on a project like the plumber comes in and he needs to know plumbing. And maybe some basic rough carpentry. Mm -hmm. Electrician comes in and he needs to know electrical and maybe some rough carpentry. But yet we're supposed to walk on a project and know everything about electrical, everything about plumbing and the carpentry and the painting. And no, you need to know enough to make valuable contributions to a conversation, help problem solve, et cetera. But you need a good team who's going to support you and say, I hear what you're saying, Renee. I don't think it'll work. I'll tell you why I don't think it's going to work. And I'm also going to tell you how I think we can get it in a different way. Right. Yeah. I mean, that it's so collaborative. And I think some designers, before they get their confidence where it needs to be, they can sometimes tip into cockiness. And that's an insecurity, right? That's just, I don't yeah. know what I'm doing. So I'm going to appear like I really know what I'm doing. And I'm going to shut down the whole conversation because I'm going to act a little bit too aggressive in the situation. And so I'm constantly telling designers, it is okay to say, I don't know, fill in the blank. Because I, 30 years in, don't know everything. There's probably lots on a job site I don't know, but I'm not afraid to ask and I know who to ask. And I think that's really where designers get hung up in that kind of gray zone. Like, I don't know what this is, but I also don't know who the hell to ask and who the hell is going to support me and are they going to make fun of me and are they never going to want to work with me again? 
the answer is maybe yes, yes, and yes, but then you're, they're not your people. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I find most people are flattered to be asked. I mean, if you're driving them crazy, that's different. But when you come with genuine, thoughtful questions and are seeking a solution, my trades love it. Like Absolutely. They love that collaborative part of it where they have a voice and an opinion and they're not the designer, but they know a hell of a lot more about construction than I do. Of course. Yes. And honestly, who doesn't like to talk about what they do? Yeah. And so I'll pick their plumber, you know, the plumber's brain. I'm like, why are you doing it that way? And I don't mean it in an aggressive way. And I'll be like, Hey, I've never seen it. What, what's, what's going on? What's this? And he's like, Oh, this is this new thing that just came out and blah, blah, blah. Great. I now know something that I can apply to future jobs. Yeah. Whether I ever see it again, whether that next plumber is going to use that same technique or not. But I, I do find that that's also where designers will go wrong. They go onto a job site, they go to a meeting and then they leave. My advice is linger. Maybe that's not a billable moment. Depends on your skill set. Depends on how your contract is written, which we'll get into. But linger a little. See what the hell the guys are doing. Ask some questions. And then maybe contribute something. Or maybe give them a heads up. Hey, you know what? I think we're going to end up with a bed on this wall. So maybe this outlet needs to go a couple of inches you know, to the left. And that may be because you didn't do the drawings in the first place or what have you. Mm -hmm. But being a part of a team takes work. And it does. And it's an important component to the success of any construction project, I believe. Mm -hmm. So the nitty gritty of the panel, what say you? How do oh. we how do we price projects? It is the <laughs> hottest topic going. It is. There were so many events and talks going on at High Point this fall about pricing specifically. It is what we all are dying to know. And like Renee said earlier, there is no magic bullet. Sorry, all y'all. Like that's the end of it. Hate to but ruin it. Yeah. Yeah. So I will share a little bit about my pricing journey. I will tell you when I first started, I I worked for other designers for about 10 years before I went out on my own. And when I started on my own about eight years ago, I was just straight hourly, but I always took, I think it was a $2,500 deposit, like a retainer to kick off the project. And I was, I did not know how long these projects would take. I had no concept. I didn't educate my clients and give them a heads up as to where I thought the design fees could land. And I accidentally became the $2,500 designer. And even though I told everybody this was just a deposit and then we would continue hourly without fail, we would get near the end of that $2,500. I would send the email saying, we're nearing the end of your retainer. We'll switch to hourly. And the response I would get was, oh, oh, we didn't we didn't think it would take that much longer. Like We hadn't really budgeted for that. Do you, how much longer, how much money do you think it's going to be? to finish the design fee. And in my mind, I was like, we just got started, lady. And before I had the courage to stand up to that kind of thing and educate my clients better, I remember one client, I said, okay, we'll finish the design. And between myself and my junior designer, I remember this number because it's like a slap in the face. We worked for 18 hours that were not billable to the client. Like think of that's thousands of wow. dollars. And for a starting designer, I assure you, I could not Crippling. afford to work 18 hours for free. Yeah. And to pay my junior designer while I was making no money. Correct. So, wow. so for me, hourly- So that's interesting. I too, again, are, are parallel careers. I worked for other designers for just a little bit over 10 years before mm -hmm. I went out on my own. They always build hourly. They always yes, took retainers. Mm -hmm. And I remember that the bookkeeper, because these were big enough firms to have a, uh, like a standalone bookkeeper, and all she would ever do was bitch and moan about managing the retainer. And that a client, and again, this is pre-internet, but the client would be like, oh, wait, well, I thought it was this hour. So did it, mm -hmm. you know, argue about 50 cents. 
And so when I went out on my own, I was like, all right, I've learned no retainers. I don't want to have to manage that as well. So I wasn't the $2,500 designer, but I too was like Leslie and I didn't educate my clients as far as the length. So I may not have, I'm sure there were some projects I didn't even make 2,500. Yeah. And like hourly can still work, but the caveat I think being you need to give clients a rough estimate of where you think it's going to land. Like you can't just say my hourly rate is X and go. And that's what I was doing. And if you're going to go through the trouble of estimating, there's, I think there are better ways to present your fees than just saying straight hourly. Again, when you're new and don't have data and don't have past projects to analyze, I think it's a smart starting point because flat fee, and I guess pendulum swing. So at full hourly going over to flat fee. I love the idea of flat fee. It is sexy. It is tidy. It is easy. The client knows up front. And so I, I'm going to jump in and, and mm-hmm. spoiler alert. I'm not sure you know this about me, Leslie, but I just switched to flat fee. To full flat fee. Well, I want to hear your experience then. 29 years of hourly, which felt comfortable, like a like mm-hmm. a good worn out shoe. But yeah, it wasn't until, I mean, I've had friends, designer friends for, I would bet the last five little five plus years beating me over the head. Renee, you're a fool. You've got to switch to fee. And I'm like, nope, I'm making good money. My clients Mm -hmm. understand it. I understand it. It makes sense. And it wasn't until I was listening to a podcast and it kills me. And I've told this story before. I cannot remember whose podcast it was, but I was sitting at my desk listening to it. And I was, you know, multitasking as we all do. And they said something like, well, the more seasoned a designer and more experience you get, the less money you make per hour if you're charging hourly. And I remember scoffing like audibly and going, that's not true. And then I started and then they gave a few examples. They're like, well, what used to take you an hour five years ago, 10, 20, whatever years Mm -hmm. ago, you can now do in a nanosecond. And so that hour you would have billed legitimately you're no longer billing. So you're penalizing yourself for having more knowledge. And I thought, I I mean, literally a light bulb went off, lightning bolt might have struck me at the same time. And I was like, okay, it's time. It's time. I think newer designers can also do it. I, I, um, Mm -hmm. that's just my personal, you know, you know, trajectory, but I do think it, it doesn't necessarily mean only seasoned designers should be offering flat fees. I think that's a really good point. I think the challenge with flat fee is a lot of new designers don't have the confidence to actually ask for the fee, present the fee that it takes to get the job done. Agreed. Agreed. And the bigger the project, sometimes we look at that fee and go, oh, crap. Oh, yeah. I want to barf half the time I'm setting right. a proposal. Like it's terrifying, even now. Yes. Yeah. And I, I say that to the designers we coach all the time. I'm in the trenches with them. Like I'm not sitting here on my high horse saying that this is easy. I'm there with you looking at these right. numbers and thinking, oh my gosh, like I have to say this number out loud to a client. Yeah. And I think maybe that also goes to the point of designers, and I shouldn't paint with a broad brush, but I hear a lot of designers, they don't give a whole lot of runway for themselves, right? They get the call, they hear the project, they get really excited about the project. They may or may not do some decent vetting. More often than not, they're more excited about the project than they are about doing their due diligence. Mm -hmm. And they, on the phone, here's my hourly or here's my rate for a living room. And and then they're locked in as opposed to giving themselves grace, frankly, to take a deep breath, finish that call, take all their notes, 
look at other projects or look online or ask a friend or ask a designer or ask, you know, and really come back at it with what's best for the client and what's best for my business. Yeah. Yep. And then they lock themselves in. The hourly rate on that, like just spewing out your hourly rate or a fee on the, that is the death of a project and the death of your profitability. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I can see how I'm sure I've done it over the years, but like, oh my God, I really want this job. Yay. This was really exciting. And yeah, you just get so wrapped up and you're halfway down the lane, you know, picking out fabrics in your head that you're not realizing that you've really got to take the time to, to sit with a project and act, I mean, someone asked me, I go, I, I literally write out the hours. I'm like, okay, I think mm-hmm. the demo will be this number of weeks. I think that, you know, for each and every one. And yeah, it's a long process. But I'm also more confident at the end of that number, even though it may seem large, I am 100% solid on how I got there. Yep. I love that you have a, a paper method, like a tangible Thing that you're working with. That's exactly why Nancy Gansakoffer, who I coach with, and I built the key, which is our pricing calculator, because I have tried them all. Nancy's coached hundreds of designers and we've all struggled with it. And the key is similar in that we give you the framework of, I know you said you break it down with like, you know, meetings are this long, demos this long. We paint with a little bit of a broader brush in that and we we provide these numbers as just a very high level industry average. And I'm air quoting that because obviously if you have your own data, use your own data. But a lot of designers have no idea. But in general, we say to estimate around 40 hours to design a plumbing room and about 25 hours for non-plumbing. And you might be going, well, that's a lot of time. Well, yeah, but don't forget there is a concept design meeting, a detailed design meeting. There is revisions. There is maybe you have a team doing things. And these are the numbers that really open people's eyes because they do that times their hourly rate. And then they go, holy shit, like that's a lot. And like, yeah, that's what you actually have needed to be charging to be profitable. Or you have been doing it in arrears hourly and just sort of surprising the clients every month. I think it's such a mature business decision to know your numbers up front, to say to the client, this is what it takes. And you can present that as a flat fee. We recommend design as a flat fee because it's where you have more control. And like exactly what you said earlier, Renee, do not penalize yourself as you get smarter and better and faster and more efficient. You can be really, really profitable using a flat fee for design, but we do recommend hourly for implementation because it's the wild friggin' West sometimes, but, and I'm putting another big caveat here, you are still providing the client an estimate of how long you think it will take. And we recommend billing in advance for a block of hours and working backwards. You should not be billing in arrears and hoping you get paid or having to negotiate with your clients. So that's the way I'm currently doing it. And I have found for me where I am right now, and it might change in a couple of years as my business evolves. But right now, I'm really happy with that model of flat fever design, hourly implementation with the client knowing what planet we're going to be on when we sure. wrap up that project. And of course there are, you know, things change, scopes change, of course, but it's a very different project when you think it's going to be 10 hours to implement versus 250. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so many designers got their flat fees scrambled during COVID. Yeah. And these were seasoned designers who probably had it down to the half hour increment, frankly, mm-hmm. as to what it really would take. And then all bets were off and they were yeah. scrambling to, you know, negotiate with their clients and the, you know, it, it was a bad situation all around. But I, I do agree with that. I think, and here's the thing, I've been doing it all as one, well, breaking it out, 
but mm-hmm. I don't do an hourly for the implementation portion of it, but I, they sure as hell know how long I think it will take the number of meetings, that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, detail. And then of course you, you've got to add in the, oh shit clause and Absolutely. however number of hours that may be, that also varies on the complexity of the project, your experience, you know, the team, do you know them? You know, there's a lot of variables that again, makes it so hard to say there's one way to price things. But I do think, you know, and, and in my, I took about, I'd say every bit of six months sort of investigating flat fees versus, you Mm -hmm. know, hourly. And it was just making me more and more frustrated because I couldn't find two designers that did it the same way. But what I did sort of the high level takeaways were you are working with an architect and a builder, right? Yeah. That's a pretty standard combination. An architect prices per square foot, typically. And of course, that can change, right? You go in, you're like, I'm going to build a 5,000 square foot house. And during the process, it turns into 6,100, right? That's still on par, right? Because they said, oh, it's going to be $300 a square foot, whatever the case may be. A contractor comes in with a pretty solid estimate, although the Mm -hmm. damn allowances, which are the bane of my existence, everybody (laughs) listening who knows, has listened before knows that's the worst word on a contract. But again, it's still a pretty decent estimate and educated yeah. guess as to what the end product will cost. And so again, I was sort of beating myself up. I'm like, and then here I come like, yeah, I'm hourly, you know, and they're like, well, to what end? To how much? Yeah. Now, I was good at saying, okay, it's going to be whatever, a six month job. And then, you know, we're, we have a scheduled one time a week meeting and I'll probably do site visits, you know, and I could break it down some, but there was a whole lot of unknown in that factor. And, and I was blessed. My clients rolled with it. But if there was a month where it was heavy, heavy in hours and the previous month had been pretty slow for whatever reason, I would always give them an update like, hey, this is this is going to be a bigger month. You know, that, you know, several hundred dollar bill you got last last month. Um, Yeah. Add a couple of zeros to it and we're going to be back in the races. But a flat fee, I don't have to do any of that. And you're letting your clients know upfront what they're going to invest. There's no surprises. You don't have that anxiety sending invoices. Correct. What you do have is the anxiety of presenting it originally, because if they say no, then you're shot. But if you had done hourly, they would say no halfway and end the project because they wouldn't be happy with the investment. It's way better to front load those conversations and have everybody know what they're walking into with their investment. Exactly. And I think from what I gather, the feedback I have heard from designers is, but I'm terrified I won't charge enough in my flat fee. And sure, that that can happen. You know, I'm not too far into flat fees, but I'm sure I will miss the mark on some things. But I also know that that mark will be made up for in markups on products. You know, so there isn't, I don't ever want a client or a designer to go to just a pure loss, right? That's absurd. But if you have different ways of making profits, maybe one's going to be heavier, you know, on that project and then cover a few like, oh crap, I didn't see X, Y, or Z coming. And sure as hell, you better learn that lesson for the next project. So you're not going to continually make the same mistakes. But so talk to me about, about markups and how, what other profit streams do you have? Yeah, that's a great question because- I think there's a lot of talk lately about margins, markups. Should you even be making money on products? Should blah, blah. I remember early on in my career, I had a really nasty client who I should have said no to, red flags, but young designer, I'll take anything. And we I all have those. <laughs> she 
kind of like at a meeting one day, she accused me of double dipping. Like how this isn't fair. You're charging hourly and you're making money on product. You are double dipping. And that that stung. And I just want everyone to be clear. That is not a thing. We are not doing anything wrong. If you go get your tires replaced, the mechanic is charging you for the tires with a margin on the product and they're charging you labor to install it. That is not double dipping. That is business. It That's is a okay. perfect analogy. Yes. Yeah. So I had to remember that for myself too, that it's okay to make money in lots of different ways. It's actually very smart to make money in different ways. Things are changed a little bit, but I know during COVID, I really had to pivot my pricing and my business model to be profitable just with design fees because product purchase was so unknown. I mean, some people would change their mind and want design only and that are thought they want full service and then they wouldn't. And I just got sick of hoping <laughs> for money on goods that I really just positioned myself to make sure I was profitable with design fees only. If you are a designer who's doing construction, doing full service, things have shifted back. I mean, we've all felt it. And I think that's less of a concern now. I don't ever quote count on that. Like I don't project for that, but it's really friggin' nice to get the money on products. But yes, absolutely. I am buying wholesale at the best pricing I can. And just like pricing my services, I have tried everything when it comes to markup. I've split the discount. I've never fully passed my discount on though, which I'm proud of myself because don't ever do that. Please don't ever do that. I've tried splitting the discount, but that's a hot mess because what the hell is retail anyway? And how do you ethically split something that doesn't, you don't have the right numbers to work from? I've tried doing a certain percent over net, but then sometimes that goes above retail. And what does that look like? So where I have landed now is, and I can't remember the exact wording in my contract, but it is essentially along the lines of we sell product at commonly available retail price or better when like when applicable, something like that. It's And don't quote that exact wording, but basically if you can, if you can go to the Googles and find it, you know, jerk retailers who are breaking IMAP rules or random coupons notwithstanding, whatever it's for online, we'll be selling it for that or less and still profitable. And the more buying power you get with your vendors, if you have a buying group you work through, if there's another way you're purchasing, you can make a lot of money on product very fairly and ethically and still be charging your client a fair retail price. I don't always extend a discount, but I, in good faith sometimes for a great client, say there's a rug and I've got a $5,000 margin. If I knock 500 bucks off, they're thrilled. I've built goodwill with them. They know that I have their best interest. I'm not just looking to make a buck, even though it's okay to be profitable and make money. And I'm still doing really, really well with profit. So, so I never promise any sort of discount, but I like to kind of, you know, send a little along for the right people when it matters and have that be part of the sort of generous spirit of what we want to do in business. But yeah, I mean, we're just, we're charging retail. And then of course the question becomes, well, what about a receiver? And all these places have free shipping. Anyone that's sending you something with free shipping is dropping that box on your curb and getting the hell out of there. I'm telling you, Renee, I can't even make this shit up. The other day I had two bar stools delivered UPS I watched the driver flip the box like a slinky down the stairs onto the top of my driveway. Oh my God. And thank God they were packed well and they were yeah. fine. They were, they were metal yeah. bar stools. But you want to talk oh, yeah. about free shipping? Boom shakalaka. You're going to have some jerky driver ninja throwing your boxes around. They're not going to receive, unpack, assemble, help you with. I'm, we all, I'm preaching to the choir here. I know. 
But well, the I funny get, thing is, there's no such thing as free shipping. UPS isn't gifting you anything. It's bundled into the price of the product. So when yes. I hear that, they're like, oh, Renee, back when Visual Comfort had Circa still, you know, as, mm-hmm. as literally the sister company. And they're like, well, on Circa, it's free shipping. I'm like, you really think Circa's eating the shipping? Like, uh, you're an educated person. You've yeah. got to be kidding me. You don't understand that it's wrapped up in the price. And when I would say that in a calmer fashion, they'd be like, <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're going, oh my God, that just never occurred to you. Like, it's yeah. absurd. But it, it's, it's sales, it's positioning, it yeah. gets people excited. But it does. I just want to explain that to make sure people are clear that no, I'm not, I tried that for a little while. And you know what I did? All my freaking margin went to paying for shipping. I wanted yeah. to try to compete and say that we included shipping. You know what sucks to pay for shipping on is tile. You know, where you're going to oh. lose a lot of money is weighs a ton. But, Absolutely. Yes. You know, it's interesting you were saying about about the markups and having having discretion. And I, I am the same way. If there is a piece that is brutally expensive, but I know it's the piece, yeah, of course I'm going to go in there and I will noodle my number if I've got mm-hmm. room. And to assure that the client will approve it, right? Because it, everybody wins at that point, right? The, the overall design wins. And, you know, it's interesting in, in all of you know, the last almost three years, I've been talking to so many designers. And what I realize is, or I'll have a designer say, well, I don't think that's right. Or I don't think that's fair to charge. The reality is, and I, I don't mean to make it so simplistic, but however you write your contract, and they agree to it is the right way to charge. I love that. You're I absolutely mean, right. They don't have to agree to it. So they may say no, and then, okay, you may reevaluate. But if you want to charge retail plus 20 and it's in your contract and they agree to it, mm-hmm. it's the right thing to charge. You know, it's like going into a dress shop and you, you know, pick up a blouse and you say, would you pay for this? Like the shop owner is going to say, well, gee, I paid a hundred, but now it's two seventy five. Nobody would ever do that. But our clients feel empowered to say that, like, what was your wholesale? I don't really understand when that actually kind of was born. I, I remember some of it actually as far back as New York. So it's, it's sort of like the thing in our industry. And honestly, I think some of it was because there were designers that would take full advantage of clients. I, did not work for any of them, but I had friends who worked for them in New York. They ran fast and loose. And most of the time they didn't get caught. And then when they did get caught, it was, you know, catastrophe. So I do think designers have gotten, you know, bad rap because one bad mm-hmm. apple, of course, you know, spoils the bunch. But frankly, you can charge whatever you want so long as the client agrees to it. And if you're transparent and their signature is on it, run with it. And I think designers are like, oh God, no, I couldn't do that. Well, Sure, you could. Absolutely. Hands down. Yeah, I love that perspective because there's a real fear about profit. There's a real fear about making money, I think, especially as women. Yes. It is hard for us to accept that we can have extra money and earn good money doing this. We just, you know, we want to just get enough, just get enough to get by, pay our bills, like make sure we're doing okay. But it's very quickly goes from a business to, like you said earlier, a very expensive hobby. And yeah, well, and I, there's I a love- there's a misnomer about our industry because mm-hmm. quote anyone can do it. I buy furniture. Oh, I went to Pottery Barn. Great, that's fantastic. That's not what I'm offering my clients. Thank I'm you. offering them an elevated custom service. There's a very different bar, but they think 
anyone can do it. So therefore they feel they have, I don't want to say the right, but, but sort of like the inclination to consult on how you're going to charge them. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, uh, did you ask your attorney the same thing? Uh, I don't think you did. No, no. I think you just pay whatever they say their hourly rate is, or you move on to someone who has an hourly rate that meets your budget. And I think designers, again, they just don't feel that confidence to to walk away when a client is not a good fit. It, it just, it is one of the hardest lessons I learned personally. I'm a people pleaser all day and I always want everybody to be happy. And it is probably my least successful character trait because it's a challenge. It's a challenge to know this isn't a good fit. And especially newer designers who are panicking that they won't get that next job, they'll take them all. And and right there, I, I was right there oh, with I them. Have, yes, ma'am. hundred percent. And those have been the worst experiences for me. I, I learned a lot, yeah. but I didn't need to learn it that hard. No. And I think it's really important to remember because again, people pleaser, I feel you on that. Someone comes to you and you want to be agreeable and sometimes you'll lower this or do that. But it took me a long time to kind of remember, well, not even remember this, be aware of this and be like, oh yeah, but these clients came to you. You get to lead the process. You get to tell them what it looks like to work with you. You did not go knocking on doors in your neighborhood trying to peddle your design services to someone who wasn't interested. They came to you. It is your business. You decide what it looks like to work with you and they can say yes or no. But I'm simplifying it. It is hard to stand in that space and say no to people to say, because this is something that's in the last year new for me is I have it on my website, what our minimums are. We have a three-room minimum. It's a minimum $30,000 furnishing spend per room. Kitchens start at 100000 And if those don't fit, we've got our online design package or a consultation. And I will tell you, having that information has brought great clients my way, and I've wasted a lot less time weeding out the wrong people. But it's also scary because I I get far fewer inquiries now than I did when I wasn't sharing anything or I wasn't leading projects and I wasn't being the one in charge. And I was just kind of like, we're here and we can design for you. Let's talk. It's very different having a business now where we know our boundaries. We know what we do best, how we do it. And we know what we need to make it profitable and make it a win for everybody. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting. I don't have those minimums on my website only because I haven't. Uh, finish the internal argument I have, you know, about the the pros and cons. But I, I think there's some serious value, especially for newer designers. So maybe maybe their furniture, you know, average spend isn't thirty thousand. Maybe yeah. it's ten, but it still sets, like you said, sets the boundaries from the get go. That if I'm going to engage with Leslie, if I'm even going to call her, I need to have the ability to ha- to spend 30,000 on furnishings. Like in and of itself, that's a huge leap forward than just, "Hey Leslie, I I love the pictures on your website." Right? Because then, then look, the reality is I don't like saying no even when I know and, and I'm confident that it's not a good fit. I don't want to like ruin someone's day and obviously if they're calling me, they're interested in me and my services and that's flattering. So, if I can avoid those, right? A few of them, yeah. That's frankly more professional of me. I agree. And I want to be really clear about this, Renee, as well, because I don't think I maybe said this as well as I could have, but 
I do not have my prices on my website. My hourly rate is not there. I'm not saying our design fees are a certain number. Like we said earlier, that's the kind of thing that you know, you share that as needed when you're proposing a project. But what I do have are those broad strokes of here's what to expect as the big numbers when working with us. But it, it does the same purpose. But I just want to make sure, like, I don't want anyone putting their hourly rate on their website because then you become a commodity and people start shopping. Yes. This is about value, not just your price. But making sure that the client's investment matches the value and where you want to be and what you can bring to make that project a success. I think having, for me, having those broad stroke numbers have been a very great filter because by the time someone gets on the phone with me, they're almost a slam dunk. I mean, very rarely at that point do they say no because they've, I've vetted them. They've vetted themselves. They know that we're in alignment with where we want to be with money. And it's a much easier sell when someone knows, oh yeah, this kitchen's going to be a six-figure kitchen versus someone it's like, well, I've got $5,000 to spend and I want you to do it all. Like, thanks for your time. Have a good day. That's not going anywhere. Exactly. And and I also think designers, you know, and me, you know, it's funny. Everything I say is because I've experienced it, you know, <laughs> um, more often than I care to probably admit. I think designers need to switch the mindset of, I hope they work with me. I hope they choose me to, do I choose them? Yes. I love that. It's true. It is just as much about us interviewing and vetting clients as it is about them doing the same with us. Absolutely. And frankly, they've had a, they've had a runway that we haven't had because they've already looked into us before they called. We don't know who they are until they call. So I, I definitely think, you know, again, having a designer give themselves grace to pause. Let me look this over. Let me research whatever it is that came up or let me look into my schedule or whatever the very polite yet professional way of saying, I need, I need a moment. I need to make sure Google them, you know, go on, go on Zillow, check out the house. You know, I do all those tricks and because I want to, I want to see, do I want to work with these people? And, and I'll be honest, I've been surprised by a few things. You know, there was one that had some litigation going, you know, no judgment, but no thank you. Right. So, it, you know, <laughs> it's amazing what the, you can find on Google. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think designers are like, oh my gosh, will they pick me? Oh my gosh, are they going to pick me? Well, it's really a mutual selection. And if frankly, it's actually more on the designer side to select someone because these projects are months or years and you've got to, you know, quote, be in bed with them constantly. And if there's even an inkling of something on day one, it's going to be a massive problem on day 45. If, if you're lucky to get that far where it's not a massive problem. One of the designers on the high point panel said something that I'd never heard before, but I loved it. He said, don't paint the red flags pink. (laughs) We tend to whitewash. We tend to tone things down. Do not paint red flags pink. We all feel them. We all know when there's a little, and they're not usually like screaming in your face, but there's that nudge of like, (laughs) you just have a little something where you're like, I don't know. Something feels a little not right, but you know, it's going to be fine. They're going to be great. And every time, every Every time, freaking time, Renee. Yep. Yep. Don't paint red flags pink. It will save you so much heartache. And look, women's intuition is rock solid. And and Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you I can pinpoint every time my gut went, "Eh," but I ignored it, you know, and it's, and I pay the price. I pay the price. The project pays the price. Nobody wins. Yeah. 
if a designer listening is saying, but I've got to take all the jobs, Renee, I, I really need the income. The problem is nobody wins if you take the wrong projects. Yes. And we, if you take those wrong projects, it will A, likely cost you. And that may not just be in dollars and cents. It could be in your reputation. It could be in the industry partnerships that are at stake because they didn't like what you were doing. It could be the client that, you know, smears you with their friends and family or gives you a poor Yelp, you know, uh, review. I mean, it, it can be all sorts of things or it can be all of them at the same time. I love that you said that because I think it's so true and it's scary when you need the money. It is saying no sounds like the worst idea, but there's um, one of the designers in our, one of our current profit insiders coaching groups that Nancy and I are working with had the same issue where she had this one client who was being really difficult, but she didn't want to fire him because her husband had just lost his job and she really needed the money. And our encouragement to her was you can't afford to stay working with him. You will lose money. And she was, I mean, so bold and I'm so proud of her because she said no to this guy and the opportunities that opened up in the coming weeks. I mean, it was like cliche almost like, you know, one door closes, another opens, but she's like, I could never have allowed these new jobs to come in if I was still spending all my time and energy and money trying to make that guy happy who I was never going to please. And there is a lot of power in saying no to something even if you don't know what's coming next, saying no to something that isn't a fit to make room for that great client who deserves your attention and energy and is ready to invest in you and your services. There is such power in doing that. And it is so freaking hard to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I wish I'd had that kind of confidence, you know, 20 years ago in my career, because it it, it is, it's, fairly hard to stand up. But what I love about, you know, all of the advances, we were joking about Zoom before we got on this call and how clunky it can be. But all of that aside, the connectivity that we have today with other designers, I mean, again, I grew up, air quote, in this industry in in the 90s and 2000s in New York. And I, I actually was very blessed. I didn't work amongst people who were insanely tight-lipped. I mean, there was there was a lot of sharing going on, but mm. nothing on the scale that it is today. Yes. Nothing. Because there was no there was no platform for it, right? You had to actually be somewhere and hear them say it or on a phone call, you know, and and now it is to the benefit of I think all designers, whether they're new or seasoned, to have all of this kind of you go girl, I got your back, you can totally do this. And Again, also because a lot of designers work alone and mm -hmm. we don't have that, you know, support system that really truly understands our business. And and I learned very early on in my career that my girlfriends who were not in the business had no idea how to counsel me because they just, <laughs> yeah, first of all, they thought what I did was fun, which is great. And sometimes it is fun, but they just had no clue because yeah. they weren't, you know, I joke, I said, I'm in the service industry. I'm just not serving food right? Like we are in the service industry. We we yeah. serve through design and furnishings and expertise, but bottom line, we're in the service business. And, you know, so my friends who are in finance or law or whatever, they have no clue what it's like to be client facing in someone's living room, which frankly adds a whole nother level of intimacy, Frank, you yes. know, that you're literally in their home. 
And you're going to sit there and go, this isn't working out. I got to go. You know, I mean, it takes a bold move to do that. Now, luckily, we can do it through email and voicemails and things like that on this, you know, with this new technology that I didn't have back then. But it is mm. still the confidence piece that that I really think and I hope that people listening to this podcast and other podcasts, there's so many good podcasts out with our industry now that they realize that not only is it possible, but that seasoned designers like you and I went through that. Yes. You know, I, I totally, I, I remember those days vividly. It's not like it was so far off that I don't remember being insecure about standing up for myself or firing. Mm-hmm. I mean, firing a client. That is, that's a tough thing to do. It is. But so valuable in the end. Yeah. If it's not a fit, it's not a fit. And you're not going to make money and your precious energy and time is going to be sucked up. It's so easy to get resentful because this is not an easy job. Like you said, Renee, like we have the occasional, we have the fun days, we go shopping, we style a little bit. We all know the back end of what this looks like. And if you're not working with great dreamy clients, you're putting yourself in a really tough position. And I know it takes time to get there. I also know looking back, I could have been firmer sooner and worked on that courage and confidence earlier. And I think I would have gotten there faster. It doesn't have to take time. I just learned the real hard and stupid way. Oh, me too. (laughs) Who to say no to and yep. Yes. But also I've had some really dreamy small clients. Mm Mm-hmm. They just didn't have mean bad. Exactly. Exactly. So I think there's dreamy clients on all scales that, that really are sincerely looking for the skills that the designers listening have. You just need to find them. You need to find your people for sure. And then once you do, honestly, they are the ones that sort of help you along because they're the ones telling their friends, they're the ones telling their work colleagues and their family and you know, whether those turn into clients or those then tell more people and then getting to know, I mean, at least in the construction side of our industry, my industry partners have carried me for years. I don't mean it that way. Like, of course, I bring on clients of my own, but they want me on projects because they know the value I offer them, not the client. Honestly, they don't care. It's how am I going to make their lives easier? And once I think a designer sees their role as that, it really does shift things, really does shift things. Yeah, I agree. So let's end with, just to scare some of the people listening, what are some of the pricing, you know, worst case scenarios that you've seen or or what were they talking about on this panel as far as what not to do, what never to do as far as pricing? Okay, that's so interesting because I don't think a never came up because like we talked about before, different yeah. models work in different businesses. I think some of the sort of horror stories that were shared, for me, it was flat fee where I probably should have billed for, what's it, change of scope? My brain's failing me right now. I should have billed extra and I didn't Mm -hmm. because something came up and it wasn't my fault, but it had to get fixed. And I didn't feel right about asking for more money because it wasn't really, you know what I mean? And I just ended up, I believe this project at the time, I was 150 an hour. And I think that project I made 78. So not nothing, but like half of what I actually charged. So do the math. You do that for long enough and you're out of business and resentful and bummed out. The $2,500 designer thing, I still think is my worst mistake, was not knowing that I needed to educate clients on how long things would really take. And 
in their mind, it was, okay, so she's $2,500, maybe a couple bucks over. In my mind, I was like, we're just getting started, people. That's nowhere near the end of it. And yes, I if I have to really distill it, my biggest mistake is not telling clients up front where that investment will roughly land for design fees. Because once I started doing that, once I had the confidence and the knowledge to actually figure those numbers out, I was able to weed people out earlier. I was able to get people on board who had no problem paying my invoices, who happily hand me five-figure checks. I'm like, let's do this. Interesting. All right. And then I'm going to ask you a question. I'll tell you what I've done wrong. because it's, And I won't tell you the whole list because we'd be on here another <laughs> hour. Do you charge separate rates for you versus your, well, actually you do flat fee now, but in your calculations of that flat fee, do you charge different rates for your design assistant than you do you? I love this question too, because I've tried it all, Renee. I used to. And now that I am working with Nancy and have, I spent many years, I coached with her. She was one of my first coaches and her advice has always been charge one rate. And I resisted that for a long time because it just was like, that's stupid. I like to be stubborn. And her point is, and I get it. She's like, okay, so if your junior designer is sick and you take over CAD work, you should get paid less for producing the same result. I was like, oh, I see where you're going with this. Where I really struggled with it was with implementation and ordering and tracking. It felt like a lot to charge my firm's full hourly rate for that service, but I have embraced it. Nancy is always right. And now we just have one firm's rate. And you know what? That's a me thing, not a client thing. Like you said earlier, if it's in your contract, if you've explained it up front, it is what it is. And it makes perfect sense to clients. If I'm doing the work, we're X. I, right now, I'm 200 an hour. I like to be transparent. I think it's good to know what's possible for people. When my design, my VA works, she's still billed out at 200, even though I'm paying her less. When my rendering artist does something, same thing. It doesn't matter yep. who on my team has done it. They are working under my guidance. Our firm has an hourly rate. That has also helped massively with profitability. Sure. What about so- you? Well, uh, that was the reason I asked was because I have done the same as you. In the beginning, I had it fully structured out and mm-hmm. it gave my clients, uh, there's one in particular who should have been fired, but she'd be like, well, can you have your assistant work on that? I'm like, uh, oh, and of course, in the beginning, I'm like, yeah, sure. Because of course, I'm you know, multitasking and I'm like, wait a minute. I know exactly why she's doing this. She's trying to scam the business. Of course, I let her uh, for a little bit, but the reality is they're not doing it in a vacuum. So even if I had a design assistant working on something, I would go over or she would, you know, shout from across the room, hey, Renee, where do you think I should look for blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It's a collaborative process, whether that's renderings, whether that's, you know, AutoCAD, whether that's, you know, uh, bookkeeping, whatever. No, it, I, I finally got rid of that because it, I, one, I found it, it offered too many areas of wiggle room mm-hmm. for a client who want to find some wiggle room. And two, I, I'm involved. So I, we were losing okay. money because I wasn't then going to charge the same thing they were, you know, it was, it was just a mess. And it was fascinating because the minute I removed it, not a single person asked me about it. Not once, not ever. Yep. And this was my hourly, you know, days. Not one client was like, oh, well, you have the assistant. Is she the same rate as you? Literally not one client had ever asked me that. 
So that was a, you know, no brainer, but duh for me. The other is, well, actually, I'll tell you one sort of in on the same lines of how you structure your client contracts now. I had one designer email me and she said, the problem is she too would break it up. So the design was one fee, the implementation was a separate, but she had separate contracts and they were canceling her before the implementation. And this was more construction side. So they were like, yes, we love everything you did. We love all the designs, the elevation, the blah, 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 blah. But we can manage it from here. That's why we have the contractor. And so I told her, I said, okay, it's one contract. You can put multiple paragraphs all you want, break out the pricing any way you want, but it's one contract because she said, they're now calling me because something went wrong and, you know, but yes. she's not being paid. And so that, you know, is massive cautionary tale because I'm one contract. You know, if you want me, you want me from the beginning to the end or you don't want me. Like that's, yep. again, it's that if you want my designs, you want my implementation. It's my baby. I'm going to see it from start to finish. And then the lastly is, is this light bulb moment about my hourly. My hourly has, you know, I don't know. I think I was $75 when I first opened my shop in, in 1999, 2000-ish. And, you know, now, yes, I'm now at 200. Should I be higher? Probably, right? And that's a mindset issue. I'm, mm-hmm. trust me, I'm just like everybody listening. We're all working on something. But I think the problem, I, the mistake I've made was one out of fear. Well, happy to admit that. My, I never moved up my existing clients when I moved up my pricing. I don't know why in my head, I, I, you know, I thought, oh, that doesn't feel fair. And that's bullshit. Right. <laughs> I mean, learn from my mistakes, people, because I'd be like, oh, the job's winding down. It's just a couple of months. And, you know, in fact, it usually was. But then if I go back now and I think, oh, well, gee, I wonder, <laughs> wow, what was that profit I could have made? Yes. And again, it was just the fear. It was the fear of ruffling feathers. It was the fear of looking like, oh, I want more or I'm not satisfied with enough. But guess what? Whatever those people did for a living, they raised their rates. My lawyer has raised his rates tremendously in the 30 years we've been working together, right? But he never apologized. Actually, I don't even think he notifies me. He just bills me at the higher rate now, which I love. You know. But again, it's just having that confidence to... My experience is now more and you pay for more when you want higher experience across any industry, let alone ours. But I have always charged a markup and I want designers to hear that. And I started doing that because the designers I work for did it. I mean, I just literally copied, honestly, when I first left New York, I had their contracts, but I just did everything the way they did it. And I saw the rationale in it because if we truly charged what we needed to for an hourly rate to be profitable, it would be astronomical, Mm -hmm. right? And nobody would feel that our industry could support that. And I think that's how that business model was first started because we are, whether you're charging, you know, retail for a product or whether you're charging wholesale plus something, you know, whatever your market can bear, whatever your experience is, you know, worked in there somehow, it is a part of our business model. And I think Mm -hmm. designers really need to get over that. And they're like, oh, you know, you'll get the, well, I could have gone to the tile store and picked that out. Well, sure. But you didn't. But you didn't. You chose it because I gave you a controlled selection and you chose one of three, right? And so like, but I paid you for the time to do that. Yes, 
And part of my time is the markup in that product. And so in the construction side, what I hear a lot of designers, and I I have the same issue, is if they're brought in after the contractor has submitted his estimate, he often has a lot of those pieces, you know, boiled in to -hmm. his own. Of course he does. That's their business model. It's very similar to ours for the same reason. Mind you, he didn't even pick it out, right? He's just taken the market, right? Either a homeowner, if, if a designer's not on a job, that homeowner did pick the tile out. If the designer's on the job, the designer picked it out. But yet he's still requesting the markup. Mm-hmm. So I want designers to really think that through. They have no problem taking a markup on something they had nothing to do with, literally nothing. But I do think designers, and I, I still work on this, is if I'm brought in first, I set the rules as to what I get markup on. If I'm second, I have to negotiate with the contractor. I think you nailed that. Absolutely. It depends who's driving the bus, who was, who's kind of leading the project and you kind of have to play by their rules. Yes. Yes. And there's ways of finessing those rules. Like, you know, if you specify something they don't have a a business relationship with, boom, then all of a sudden you're buying the faucet. Right. But it's, it is something that I think has to be included in, in a business model to be successful. I just don't see designers being as successful as they should be if they're only doing a fee-based system. I agree. It is hard to be very profitable with a fee-based system. I think the only way it works is instead of being, which in general we are as full-service construction-minded designers, we are high-ticket, low-volume. Yes. It's going to have to inverse your price is going to have to drop. Maybe that means you have to have a team and you have to have high volume. That's really freaking hard to do. Absolutely. Absolutely hard to do. And I find it's even harder to do in the construction world because it's harder to find the people who know enough to be those junior assistants, which is the price point you're going to need to bring on as opposed to you know people of your same yes. level. Yeah. Leslie, this was insanely informative. I know actually a lot of the people listen while they're driving. And so they're going to have to listen to this again so they can take notes. So don't, don't take notes while you're driving, but although I do on occasion at stoplights, I promise. Um, Leslie, tell us more about your work with Nancy, how designers can find you and all the good things in between. You got it. So of course, as I alluded to in this whole episode, I am a designer. I have my own high-end firm. That's half my business, but the other half is spent coaching, which did start by accident. Like I think a lot of designers turn coaches, but I love to be able to do that and to serve other designers and share my knowledge. I've always been that mindset of, you know, it's cheesy, but a rising tide lifts all boats. And the more we can help each other and share numbers and sources and resources, it helps a ton. So I was coaching on my own for a number of years, but last year I joined Nancy Ganzikoffer as her associate coach. And I love it because I get to mastermind with all these incredible designers. We guide them through a year-long program called Profit Insiders Academy. And I mean, it is so transformative. The early focus is on confidence and pricing because those are two of the most important things to start making changes in your business. So if that's something that sounds like it might be a fit, you can go to Nancy's website. It's nancygansacoffer.com. It's a mouthful. I'm sure Renee will have it in the show notes for everyone. Absolutely. And there is a free resources tab there where she's got a lot of great free resources for designers, including the job profitability analyzer, which I think might be really helpful 
helpful if you were listening to this episode and are curious to run your numbers and to know how to determine it. That's a great freebie that she has that you can start playing with. And it's eye-opening. It can make you want to throw up a little bit. I was going to say, do you need a glass of wine while you're doing it? You might, uh, some, if if the results don't turn out quite as With you would a box hope. of tissues next to it. Uh, and maybe some chocolates just yeah. to soften the blow a little bit, but it's really important stuff. But I, I might not do it. I don't know if I want to run all my projects through something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it is a little painful sometimes, especially when you yeah. find out you're not making what you thought you made, yeah. but holy heck, will it motivate you to transform and to charge more next time because you can stand behind those numbers on your proposal because you know, you know, you have numbers, you have data, you know what it takes to get the job done profitably. And you can, I have found it's allowed me to speak a lot more confidently in proposals and not waver. Right. And again, be confident when the client says no, thank you. Yes. They mean it. I mean, that's the thing. They mean it. If they can't afford you, they will tell you. Mm-hmm. It, it may not say it in those words, but you'll get the you'll get the message one way or the other and be confident to say thank you and good luck. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, or you'll constantly be sitting there with a box of tissues and wine. <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Right? That's not the adventure. <laughs> no. It's a nightmare. Well, Leslie, I can't thank you enough. We will have all of that in the show notes for everybody to find safely outside of their car when they're at their desk. And um, I really, really can't thank you enough. This is such a hot topic. Obviously, if High Point had you down to mm-hmm. to be on a panel to discuss it and the designers there were, you know, stand, like she said, standing room only. Yes. Wonderful. Everyone wants to know about this. So I hope you did get some good tidbits out of today's episode even if nothing more, just to eavesdrop on what other designers are charging. Because <laughs> I find that's very helpful to know what's possible. And and like I said earlier, just to hear that we've screwed it up. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yeah. All the time I'm screwing yes. it up. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and just because we have one system down doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect. Yeah. But like Leslie said, going back, knowing where you actually stood in a project, you make fewer mistakes each time. Correct. And I think that's really the the overarching theme is is not to get it perfect, but to keep perfecting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate Renee. all of your wisdom. Thank you for listening. And I hope you heard something that you can apply to a project today. If you're ready to increase your construction projects in your business, check out the details on my signature course, The Interior Designer's Guide to Construction Management. It's a six-part digital course that will save you a three-year learning curve, get you profitable, bring in an income and lifestyle that makes sense for you by learning the top strategies, what works and what doesn't, building your confidence so you're no longer paddling to stay afloat or worse, learning how to manage construction on a client's project. Through the course, I'm handing over 30 years of top strategies and advice. Head to my website, devinyedesign.com, for more details on the Interior Designer's Guide to Construction Management and become educated and empowered for your next construction project.